Well, hey, this morning, just want to mention a couple things um, kind of as we get started. But one, you probably noticed in your row, if you didn't notice, I means someone already took it. Um, but there's little cards that just have some stuff to fill out. And so if you call this church home on a regular basis, this is probably for you. If you're a guest with us today, we'd love for you this to be your home on a regular basis as well. Um, but what we're asking is this. Starting January 25th, we're going to be having two services. And so, or January 22nd, 25th, I'm drawing a blank on the date. So one of those two, whatever day is a Sunday. And on that day, there'll be two services. So we're just trying to solidify what time and where. And we have people working with children. And so we're asking that if you know, hey, we're probably only going to come at 9 or only going to come at 1030. We're asking you to kind of commit to that time for at least six months. And so if that's you, if you just mark on there what time you're willing to commit to and your names of you and your family members. We need family members because if you have children, we want to make sure we have more than enough people working with our kids because we want to make sure we invest in them well. And so please think about that. You can, you can mark on this. And if you're willing to serve, like you may go, I already serve. Cool. Then we don't need to follow up. But if you're thinking, you know what? I'd love to get plugged in and serve on a Sunday morning in some way that would be helpful to other people. Then go ahead and mark on that and we'll follow up with that as well. And so that's coming up in January. Also beginning January 18th, that's a Wednesday, we're launching what we're calling Alpha. It's not, I'm going to rephrase that. We're not calling it Alpha. It's called Alpha. And so it's this idea that what's it look like for us to answer the big questions of life? What's it look like for us to think through things like, why do I exist? Why am I here? Why does my life matter? What am I living for? And so if that interests you or you think you know someone in my interest, we'll have some more information next week that you can give out. Um, but we want it to be something that you can invite someone to. And so it'll be on Wednesday nights, uh, it's kind of low-key around tables and around conversation, and so we hope you'll think about inviting someone, and maybe it's for you, maybe it's not, but if, even if it's not for you, you probably know someone that you can invite to be a part. And so I just want to make you aware of those two things. But, but as we were thinking about today, I was thinking about have you ever noticed how there are some people that when you're around them, they're always just good? And here's what I mean. It doesn't matter what's going on in their life, that they're just, they're good, right? Like life can be tumultuous, life can be chaotic, life can be going really well, and they're always just good doesn't matter what they've experienced or what's going on. They just find themselves in that place all the time. And like it, most of us, if we're honest, we can be really good when things are going well. But if things aren't going well in our lives, we're probably the opposite of good. Like we're a mess. Like we're all over the place. We're snapping at people and we're short and we're like, my life is awful. And maybe it is, you know, like whatever it might be. But we find that we react in that ways. And we're not the people that are just good no matter what's going on. And so here's the question for you and I. Do we have a good cheer when things are a mess? Right, it's obviously Christmas, so hence the word cheer. Like, do we have good cheer when things are a mess? But, but what if I rephrase that question? Do we have joy when we have no control in our life? Do we have joy beyond our circumstances? Have we come to the place where we know what joy looks like no matter what's going on when our life is spinning out of control, right? So here's the reality. For most of us, the Christmas season is a time of celebration, right? Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you like the idea of time off work or you like the idea of time off school or you like the idea of spending time with family and eating a different meal. Like usually it's a different meal. Um, I mean, unless you go out for Chinese, which you can do on Christmas Day, it's one of the few places that are open. Um, but, but maybe you do something unique in your family you look forward to, or you give gifts, or you get gifts, and so you just really look forward to Christmas, right? Even your coworkers who don't like you treat you well at Christmas, and you even treat the coworkers you don't like well at Christmas, right? It's a good time. 
like our staff Christmas party, we treat one another well on that day, maybe the only day of the year, but, um, or maybe, or just maybe, the Christmas time for you is a time in which it's not a time of celebration. You're grieving the loss of someone you love. You're missing your family and your friends. You're lonely. You don't like the holiday season at all, and it depresses you. Right? What if, what if maybe, just maybe, in the midst of all that, what if somehow that you and I could come to the place where we could come to know what joy looks like in the midst of those things. And what if the first Christmas story, what if it evoked an image or a picture or a story that if we thought about maybe just a little bit differently, we might begin to live with some joy in the midst of whatever it is we're going through. And honestly, the first Christmas story, if it's one I was going to try to tell you and try to convince you of something, it's probably not the story I would use. But we'll talk about it anyway. Right? Imagine yourself in the first century world. Imagine you live in 2,000 years ago, and you're a part of the Middle East, and you live in this place called Israel, and you're a part of these people who are conquered by the Roman Empire, and you're just trying to get through your day. Now, imagine being a teenage girl in the midst of that, probably a 13 or 14-year-old at most, right? In fact, here's the crazy thing about this. In that culture, right, they had arranged marriages. So as a dad, I would have say in who my daughter married. By the way, as a dad of a daughter, I think it's a great idea. And I am all for it. If we want to bring that back in the next few years, I think that'd be amazing. I don't know why we ever got rid of it. It was a terrible idea. Um, just going to throw that out there. <laughs> but that's not how that works, unfortunately, for us today. But in that day, it did. And so Mary is pledged to be married to a guy named Joseph. Joseph would have been a little older, probably 18 to 20, maybe even a little older than that. We don't really know. But you're pledged to be married, and you're pledged when you're young. And then there's this time of this year, we call it betrothal in the scriptures, right? The year of betrothal, where you're like married, but you're not really married, if you know what I mean. Like you're married, but you're not really married yet. But you're legally married, but you're not married. And so Mary is not really married. She's just kind of married, like on paper married, like legally, like all your stuff married. Um, but she's not married. And then she finds out she's pregnant. And can you imagine? 13, 14 year old girl. My daughter's 11. This is not that hard for me to imagine. Actually, you know what? My daughter's only 10. She's not 11. <laughs> Holy moly. I'm glad she's not in here right now, or that would be bad. So my daughter is 10, but it's not hard for me to imagine her at 11 either, or 13. You don't need to tell her that. <laughs> but it's not hard to imagine how scared you'd be. It's not hard to imagine, especially in the first century world, where you would be possibly killed if you're found to be pregnant. That was often you'd be stoned, taken outside the city, and they would throw rocks at you until you died. It's a horrific picture. It's her husband, Joseph. Apparently, he was a pretty good guy. Because Joseph had every right to divorce her because he knew it wasn't his baby. He was pretty sure of that. And probably would have divorced her rather than having her stoned. He'd done it quietly as best he could because this is how we know he was a good guy. Because if he wasn't a good guy, he would just be like, it's not my kid. Too bad for you. And she'd been taken outside and stoned. And so rather, Joseph plans to divorce her quietly. But here's the reality for that. He had to be persuaded by an angel. I know. 
you can do with that story what you want, but it's what the Bible tells us. Like, the story is so unimaginable, it's probably what makes it more true. And Joseph, Joseph is persuaded to not divorce her, that this baby is to be from God. And so it, this reality, the angel comes to Mary as well and says, hey, this child, this child that you're with, this child is from God. And, and she's like, well, you know, okay. And so she has this incredible picture of faith that she embraces. And she says, okay, then I will, I will do this because I believe in the character and nature of who God is. But that doesn't negate the stares of others. It doesn't negate being a young teenage mom. It doesn't negate the second guessing that Joseph would have had to have done. This is overwhelming to a teenage girl. But in the midst of that, she trusts in the character and the nature of God. I, I can't imagine being her. I mean, if I was trying to convince you of the story of faith, of Christianity, to follow Jesus with your life, I probably would not write this story. This would not be the story that I would use, but it's the story that exists. And it's part of what I think it's so impossible that it makes it possible for us to imagine. So what if maybe, just maybe, that somehow this improbable story is true? And maybe, just maybe, Mary's faith sets a trajectory for people to follow after. And what if, just maybe, through Mary's faith, God is doing a radically new thing in and through. He takes an ordinary girl and a Jewish carpenter. And from these two common people, he does something that revolutionizes all of the world, all of creation, all of the cosmos. This is who God is. He takes things that seem impossible and he makes them possible. He think, takes things that are so small, that seem so insignificant, like just two ordinary people in the Middle East, a place of not that importance, there's very little importance in the world. And from that place brings about the transformation of the world. And Mary, having come to know the character and nature of God, trusts in him. Her circumstances do not change. But her trust in who God is increases. As you catch that, her circumstances don't change. She's still pregnant as a teenager. She's still not officially married. She still has all these things she's dealing with. But in the midst of that, she has faith and trust in who God is. And she sings a song. Right? It's called the Magnificat or Magnificat. Either one, by the way, I googled about 12 different ways you can say it. Uh, you can go watch them all on YouTube if you want, but either one is appropriate, Magnificat or Mag Magnificat. I looked them all up because I was like, I want to say it correctly. What I know is this, there's no consensus, say it however you want. Um, but here's what that means. Magnificat means my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. So this text from Luke chapter 1, Mary sings this song in the midst of all she's going through in the middle of the tumultuous experience that she's having, she sings. And so the question for you and I is this. In the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves, could we still sing to God? Could we still trust that God is at work in the things we see and don't see? Could we come to believe that he is present and he loves us in spite of what we're going through or what we have experienced. And maybe, just maybe, you'll find through this song, through the story of Mary, that it will speak to you in a new way. So here's what Mary sings. She says this. My soul 
glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Today is the third Sunday of Advent. Advent means expectation or coming or arrival. And so it's just we, have, we mark off on the Christian calendar four Sundays before Christmas. And so this is the third Sunday. This is the Sunday of joy. And so I can't help but think about this. Um, joy, I think it was important to define. Joy is beyond happiness. Happiness is an emotion that comes and goes. Happiness is dependent upon our circumstances. But joy is a state of being rather than an emotion. It's like, who am I sitting here in this moment? Joy is, I can live with joy no matter what's going on in my life. I can know joy regardless of my circumstances. I can know joy when people are mean to me, when people are great to me. I can know joy in the midst of everything. Joy is beyond an emotion. It is not dependent upon my circumstances. Happiness is fleeting. And it is dependent upon my circumstances. Nowhere in scripture does God promise us happiness. But he does promise that we can come to know Joy. And there is a different difference between those two. And that difference does matter. I can feel unhappy and be joyous. Now, I can also be joyful and be happy. It's not that they can't go together, but one is different than the other. In fact, Mary begins this phrase. She sings these words, my soul glorifies the Lord. This teenage girl spent her life trusting and believing in who God is, his nature, and his character. And she has sat with God so often in such a way that no matter what's going on, in the midst of finding out you're pregnant as a teenage girl, an unwed mother, and you're freaked out, she knows who God is enough to know that God is present with her in the middle of that. She knows enough to know that God loves her where she is, as she is. She knows enough because she has sat with God in silence and in quiet. And she's come to know who he is. And this leads me to ask this question. What has our soul? What has your soul? And I don't mean like your soul, like it's some disembodied thing. I mean like the essence of who you are, that, that everything that all encompasses you, what has your soul? What is it when you sit in silence? What is it your mind is drawn to? What is it when you find yourself alone? Where do you find yourself wandering and your mind going? In those quiet moments, where do you find peace or rest or life? Because in those things, we find out what has our soul. And Mary knows the God who's going to make all wrongs right. She knows the God who promises he's going to raise up the lowly and lift up the brokenhearted. 
And she sings about it. She's like, I know the one. That when the world seems like it's a mess, when it feels like chaos, when, when you don't know what to do, when you find out you're pregnant because God's the one who gave you this child, when you find out whatever is going on, that God's going to use you to be a blessing to the world, when you find out these things, she can rest in the joy of knowing the presence of God, regardless of what is going on in the world around her or the world around us. And so it comes back to the question for you and I. Do we know God in that way? That we can say, my soul glorifies the Lord, that who I am rests in the goodness of who God is. And so I have hope in the midst of that. And so that no matter what kind of despair, because by the way, she would have been in despair. She would have been freaked out. But she's trusting that somehow the goodness of God transcends her circumstances. And so Mary sings this song about God's blessing. She references the Psalms and Zechariah and Zephaniah and Hannah's song in 1 Samuel, right? She, she references all these scriptures in this song that she sings. Because she understands what it means to be blessed by God. Now, I got to be honest with you. Um, I'm trying to spend less time on social media because I think it can be like a cesspool. Sorry if you love it. Um, I just think it can suck the life out of you and waste time. It's a time killer. Um, and so I, I'm trying to spend a lot less time on it. Um, but I do remember a few years ago, and, and still kind of true, people would use like the phrase hashtag blessed a lot, right? Like, I don't, none of you have ever done that. Um, but, but people would use hashtag blessed. And so I came across this article from the New York Times, and I just thought rather than me just reading it to you, you could read it with me. And so I, it's going to be on the screen if you want to follow along. But I was thinking how people had, had begun to, to mischaracterize what it means to be blessed by God. And so here's just a, an excerpt from this article from the New York Times in 2014. God has, in fact, recently blessed my network with dazzling job promotions, coveted speaking gigs, the most wonderful fiancés ever, front row seats at Fashion Week, and nominations for many, a 30 under 30 list. And blessings aren't limited to the little people, either. He blessed Macklemore with a wardrobe designer, thanks for the heads up, Instagram, and Jamie Lynn Spears with an engagement ring, hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed, she wrote on Twitter. He's been known to bless Kanye West and Kim Kardashian with exotic getaways, probably before the divorce, and expensive bottles of champagne overlooking sunsets of biblical proportion, naturally. There's literally a chick in my Facebook feed right now who just posted a booty shot of herself, and all it says is, blessed, said Aaron Jackson. <laughs> Sorry, I almost took it out, but I thought I'd leave it. A stand-up comedian in Virginia. Now wait, is that really a blessing? There's nothing quite like invoking holiness as a way to brag about your life. But calling something blessed has become the go-to term for those who want to boast about an accomplishment while pretending to be humble, fish for a compliment, acknowledge a success without sounding too conceited, or purposely elicit envy. Blessed, here's what it means by the way, divine or supremely favored, is now used to explain that coveted TED Talk invite as well as to celebrate your grandmother's 91st birthday. It's carried out in hashtags blessed. Hashtag blessed. The New York Times, they feel blessed, 2014. But what does it mean to be blessed, right? Most of those examples in that article would be like lucky, fortunate, good genetics, right opportunities, not blessed. In fact, here's what it means by blessed. It's the promise of God's presence. It's the promise of his nearness. 
Right? In fact, here's what we find in the scriptures. If we are blessed by God, here's what he calls us to then do. To be a blessing. To be blessed by God is a call to be a blessing to others. And maybe, just maybe, if we are a blessing to others, we might come to know the joy that God invites us to know. We don't find our life's purpose that when you are blessed to be a blessing, you might come to know the joy that is beyond our circumstances. It is near in times of despair. And so if we were to go back into the scriptures to Genesis chapter 12, there's this picture of when God calls Abraham. He was Abram at the time. He's going to become Abraham. And he's the father of many nations. And so he's calling Abram and he says, hey, um, I'm going to bless you. And in fact, here's what the scriptures actually say. They say this, I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, right? Okay, bless, here we go, appropriate context. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham, I'm blessing you so you can be a blessing. Not so you can say, I'm blessed. Hashtag blessed. God wants to bless you so you can be a blessing. This is the reality of what it means to be divinely favored by God. It doesn't mean you get all the things you want, that under your Christmas tree are all the presents you long for. It means you're called to live a life of joy in which the overflow is the blessing of others. And what we find is when we live that way, we might just find that we find fulfillment and hope and a reason to live. Mary knows the person, the God who calls people to be a blessing to the world. And she has faith that that God is faithful to redeem and to restore and make all things new. Mary's so convinced of that. She believes the angel says, the one who is to be born from you will be the savior of the world. She trusts in that. Her faithfulness brings about the birth of Jesus. It is Jesus is God in flesh. It is God among us. It is God with us. And Mary's faithfulness brings about the one who is redeeming and restoring all the things of the world. This is the one that Mary begins talking about. And Jesus, he lives and he teaches and he preaches the message that his mother sang of. Do you know that, Jesus? Who promises to lift up the lowly, those who are crushed and brokenhearted, the one who is present with you and I in our times of suffering, the one who is with you and I no matter our circumstances, the one who regardless of your past promises you a new future. God desperately wants to raise you and I up. God wants to raise you and I up so that like Abraham, we can be blessed to be a blessing to the world around us. Mary's testimony, Mary's life, literally has helped to change the world. And the question for you and I is, what might God want to do in and through you? What might God want to do in and through you? I didn't talk about, right, it talks about Mary's cousin Elizabeth. She's become pregnant. She's an old lady and gets pregnant. That's the story above. If you go read the rest of Luke chapter 1, it's the beginning part. Old lady gets pregnant. Mary's young girl gets pregnant. Two kind of polar opposites. One never was married. Uh, the other one is old. These things shouldn't happen. But God does these things that seem impossible. And you're going, well, like, does that mean like if, okay, I, I want to be clear. 
We don't all get what we long for in life. Nowhere is that God the promise of his blessing. In fact, I would say this. I think sometimes uh, we misconstrue scripture, right? There's this passage in Romans 8.28, which says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. In all things God works for the good of those who love him. You're like, well, this must be God at work. Okay, God works through things that happen in our life, but he's not the causation of the things that happen in our life. Do you understand the difference of those two things? And that matters. God didn't make the things happen in your life, but he promises he can redeem the broken parts of our lives or our stories. He doesn't promise it'll be the way we longed for it, but he can repair and restore and help us find something more. That is what he promises. So he will work for the good in our lives, but it doesn't mean everything that happens in our life is good. Because sometimes it's awful. I can't help but think about the Christmas season for us. So it's been about nine and a half years that we came, nine and a half years ago we came here um, from the Chicago area. And there's a person I know, she's a, now she's a writer and speaker and has written a book, uh, I think at least one, maybe two now. Um, but our kids were the same age. We worked together at the same church. She was the children's pastor. I was the youth pastor. I worked with students. She worked with kids. Uh, we had two kids. Our kids were eight days apart. It's kind of fun. Right. They'd run around and play. They'd yell each other's names, Titus, Isaac, back and forth. And they'd run around the gym playing. I, I'll never forget. I can still see in my mind's eye, like the last week before we left, they had this little party to, to kind of send us here. And our kids are running around the gym playing. And they're just running in circles and yelling each other's names. And there's a couple hundred people just milling about. And there's kids, like they're oblivious, right? They're little kids. They don't care. They're three. Um, and they're just yelling. I remember that moment watching it going, oh, it's a bummer. Like, you know, he was growing up with this kid. They'd been eight days apart. It wasn't pretty cool. They had another little boy named Eli, and he was just pretty close to Gracie's age. So we had two kids about the same age, but, but we left. And, and Titus started having these problems. And they started getting him checked up and checked out and, and trying to figure out what's going on. And eventually they find out he has what's called Batten disease. Um, there's no cure for Batten disease, by the way. No kids live past the age of 12 with Batten disease. You can only get it if both parents have the gene, and then you only have a 50-50 chance. Here's the problem for Becca and Dan, her husband, Danny. They both had the gene, and they had two boys, and they both had it. One's still struggling, and he's blind, and he's Gracie's age. He's 10. And Titus lived till he was about six or seven. And why do I tell you the story about Becca, who had to bury her seven-year-old son? Because the book that Becca wrote, and you can buy it on Amazon if you want, um, it's called You Can't Steal My Joy. So what Becca's message has been to people who've gone through all kinds of things is no matter what you've experienced, I know what it's like to grieve the loss of your son. I know what it's like to bury my own son. I know what it's like to say goodbye, but you can't steal my joy. And she would tell you unequivocally, the only place that joy can come from is coming to know who Jesus is. She would quote to you Romans 8, 28, and she'd say, hey, by the way, God works for the good of those who love him, but he doesn't promise everything you've experienced is good, but he can redeem and restore what seems to be so broken. But I can live with hope that God is going to make all things right, that there will be a day when I will come to see my son face to face. Do you have that kind of joy? Do you have the kind of joy that you know you have buried one son and you're going to probably have to bury another one? It's a level of joy I honestly can't even comprehend. 
God forbid you have to. But do you know the one that will redeem and restore and make new? Do you know the one that, like Mary, knows how to spend time so that our soul magnifies the Lord? That her life song, this Magnificat, that you and I could sing in such a way that my soul glorifies the Lord no matter what my circumstances might be because I've come to know the one who sets the world right. That I can come to know joy no matter what I'm experiencing, no matter what I have gone through. Do you know God in that way? And the only way we come to know God in that way is to learn to sit in his presence. In the silence of our moments of our life, when everything is loud, to literally find moments of silence and go, God, speak to me. God, help me to sit in your presence. God, help me to listen to your voice. In those quiet moments of your life, when the world may feel chaotic around you, can you and I say, my soul glorifies the Lord. And until we've come to that place, the invitation is for us to come to know more and more the Jesus that Mary carried to birth, the one that she eventually called Lord. And you think, Mary didn't know despair. She watched her son die. And for three days, she grieved like any mother who's lost a son. But the hope she has is the same hope that you and I have, that God can redeem and restore and bring life to things that seem dead. And this morning, maybe you just need to sit in silence. Maybe you need to sit in quiet. Or maybe you need to receive the grace of God because your life has been a mess and you know it's been a mess, but you long for his joy that redeems and restores and makes news that you long to know this God who offers his grace and says, you're mine and I'm yours. This morning we're going to take communion in just a few moments. And Jesus, when he, right before he was about to die, he gathered his disciples together and he said, hey, um, Come to the table with me. At my table, there's always room for more. And so the words he spoke, he said this. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink. And he invites us to do that again and again. And so the church historically has invited people to come to the table to say, will you receive the grace of God? Will you receive his love poured out for you in a way that says, I want to change everything. I want you to know who I am. I want you to find a life that leads to life, that your sin and your past and your brokenness does not have to be what defines your life, but God's love and his mercy and his grace and his joy can define your life. And so just a few moments, we're going to pray and we're going to invite you to come up the middle outside aisles to two spots to come to the table. And someone's going to say to you, the body of Christ, and someone's going to say to you, the blood of Christ. In our tradition, we practice what we call open, open table communion. Anyone can come, but, but by your coming, what you are saying is, God, I trust that you are who you say you are. I want to live my life for you, that Jesus really is Lord, and I want to experience his joy and his grace that redefines who I am. So this morning, if you want to come to this table, in just a moment, we invite you to do so. We pray with me. Father, we come before you today recognizing your love and your grace and your mercy, that you desire for us to be the kind of people who come to know who you are. And not only do we get to come to know who you are, but whose we are. And so, Father, we ask today that we would be people who experience your mercy and your love and your hope. 
That as we would come to this table today, that you would extend to us your grace. And just like the call of Abraham, that we might be people who are blessed to be a blessing. So Father, help us this day to receive your blessing, your gift, your joy, and be givers of the same. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.